Go. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Um, uh, Gary, thank you for sitting nearly in the Pharisee section today. You're right at the borderlands. Uh, we're not actually going to be addressing any of the Pharisees today uh, because this is an all-in-house conversation that Jesus is going to have with his disciples, specifically the 12. Now, it's important to understand this, that over the last year, Jesus has been baptized Jesus has been cast out into the wilderness for his temptations. He began to minister in and around Galilee. He's taken up residence in Capernaum, specifically in Peter's home. He has already crossed over in Matthew. Uh, Matthew's chronology is not in actual chronological order. Uh, if you want that, you probably need to go to uh, Mark and or Luke. They're better about this. Matthew has a different story to tell, so he's not worried about necessarily getting all the days in order. Uh, he gets the seasons right, but like he's not worried about getting all the miracles in sequential order. By the way, neither is John. John's uh, miracles, he records seven of them, plus the resurrection, uh, that's eight. Uh, they're not in chronological time frame order, and neither is Matthew's. Jesus has done all these miracles. He's healed the paralyzed man. He's cast out legion, the demon across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee. He's already saved the uh, disciples from a storm once, and, um, and they're back preaching. And in about the one-year mark, chapter 10 begins. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, uh, Jesus had a larger body of followers. If you read uh, other Gospels, you will see that Jesus actually sends out a group of 70 followers of Christ uh, to do the same kind of ministry he's going to call these 12 to. Um, but initially, Jesus has picked 12 apostles, 12 primary followers, out of the group. Okay, So if you can think, there's probably... I would say probably close to 120 to 150 followers of Jesus, many of them women, maybe even as much as half of them uh, women. Uh, and then there are at least 70 men. And then of those 70, there's the top 12. Okay? So you kind of see that big group. We tend to see Jesus walking around with his staff and his robe with, with 12 guys tripping around after him uh, and money falling out of Judas's pockets. That's No, there was this entourage. This is a small village moving around with Jesus as he preaches and teaches. And, uh, and from that larger group, Jesus selects 12 men. And, and in this verse 1, he pulls them together and does kind of this weird thing. He gives them a taste test of Pentecost. Uh, way over in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God descends from heaven. Little flames rest upon their head. They speak in tongues, they heal people, they preach the gospel, and they baptize. And uh, here, Jesus kind of pulls together the 12 and says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to give you a little inside trick here, and I'm going to give you authority. He gives them legal authority to act on his behalf. This is kind of the first real test we see, or the first real uh, taste we get of what church should look like. Okay? Not the building that we have built, but what the body of believers that follow Jesus look like 
and how they act. And he gives them his authority. So he's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. But he now says, hey, I'm going to let you do this now. And for the last year, he's been sitting on sides of mountains, sitting on rocks, standing on stumps, sitting in the synagogues. And he would teach. And day in and day out, they were getting a front row uh, uh, a class of how to read Scripture, how to see the world, and then apply Scripture. He's been telling parables, though Matthew hasn't gotten to many of those yet. He's been teaching them how to build parables. It's like, so, so Peter, you're sitting there, and you see this farmer standing over there. Uh, what is that farmer doing? Well, the farmer, he's... Uh, He's, uh, he's, he's digging up a hole. And he goes, how about this? How about we tell a story about that farmer? Uh, imagine a farmer uh, is digging in a field that is not his own, and he finds a great treasure, and then he buries the treasure, and then he goes and he sells everything he has, and then he buys the field, and therefore the treasure, because he has found something worth giving everything over to. And, uh, and everyone kind of can relate to that because even if you don't buy a lottery ticket, one of you has sat in, this, in your own chair at one point and thought, if I had $100 billion, what would I do with it, right? Uh, we've, we've all had those thoughts. So it was not outside of the, the mindset uh, for the common everyday person to think of what would it be like to find hidden treasure. And so Jesus is like, Peter, uh, so you see that guy over there in the field digging? Make up a story and then say the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like that. Jesus has come. Go and get rid of all the garbage in your life to come back and lay claim to this Messiah who I am proclaiming to you, Jesus. And to validate that message, I'm going to give you authority to cast out unclean spirits. And if they're sick, heal the sick. And except for mother-in-laws. Right, Jesus? No. She's like, no, Peter, even mother-in-laws. And so, well, what about, you know, what about the dead? Well, if they're dead, raise them from the dead. Whoa, okay. Because so, it says here, right, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Cast down unclean spirits. Uh, uh, and so, so he's giving them the authority. And he sends them out. Matthew doesn't record this, but Mark does. He sends them out two by two. All right, sends them out in pairs. So you two are going to go, you two are going to go, you two are going to go, you two are going to go. So out you go, right? So there's six small groups, six teams, all right? And then he says this in verse 2. Uh, Matthew gives us a recording of the disciples' names. Uh, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, and other, uh, other gospels, Bartholomew's name is Nathaniel. Okay, he had two names. Uh, Thomas, who got has the worst rap in human history. Bro asked a question, and forevermore he is known as yes, and he's not right. <laughs> he asked what every one of us would ask if we hadn't seen it. Like, did we really see that on the internet, or is that some kind of CGI stuff? And then Jesus appears, and Thomas was like, "I'm in." Right. So poor Thomas. Um, Philip and Bartholomew slash Nathaniel, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. What's Matthew's other name? Levi. Levi. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, whose other name is also Judas. Uh, sometimes he's recorded as Judas, not the Iscariot. Um, 
uh, right? Is that what yours says? Or you have a note? Yeah. So it's like, hi, I'm Judas, not Iscariot, right? Uh, that guy. And then, um, and then uh, Simon the Zealot. And then Judas Iscariot, uh, which, as we talked about earlier um, uh, last week or the last couple of weeks, could mean uh, the dagger men, right? Uh, so uh, Judas and Simon are the bottom of the barrel uh, as it comes to that. Now, interesting, if you look at all of the times that the 12 apostles are named together, Mark 3 and Acts 10 record this, this list as well, uh, they're not always in the same order, but they're always in the same groupings. That is to say, the first four, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, are always in the top four. The second four are always Philip, Bartholomew, slash Nathaniel, and Thomas, slash Matthew, Levi, right? Um, so, and then, and then the last group, uh, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. They're always in the bottom four. So, it's very interesting to me, and the Bible doesn't say why, but I find it interesting. There's always this rack and stack, right? Jesus always deals with, with the groups of people, uh, and perhaps uh, for whatever reason, he grouped them in their skill set. Perhaps he's, he grouped them in their, uh, I don't know, a height to, to, I don't, who knows, right? Um, but he's got these, these three groups of four, uh, four groups, three groups of four, but then, curiously enough, how do we name the top three, or how do the top, top disciples, we call the top three, right? Peter, James, and John. Andrew was always there, right? Unless specifically excluded, Andrew was always hanging around because he was, he was Simon's brother. He's like, I'm going to go with my brother. Like, leave me alone, dude. All right, I'm with Jesus now. All right, I can't, can't hang out with you. Why are those the top three that are always named? Uh, for whatever reason, Jesus called them out of the group specifically. Peter was the 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 hands-down leader of the group, right, for whatever reason. He had the, the natural charisma. Perhaps he was uh, the oldest. Historically, we believe uh, sometimes uh, there's some history that indicates he may have been the oldest. Perhaps he had a big red beard and was very manly. We don't know. Um, he just whooped everybody. Uh, but he was the, the leader, and uh, John, how are y'all? Uh, John obviously had a special mission from Jesus because He's the only one that died a natural death and wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So Jesus had a specific mission for John, and does anybody remember who the first disciple martyred was? It was James, right, in the book of Acts. So uh, Peter, James, and John had a special, um, uniquely special calling on their life, I would say, even in the ministry of the Twelve. All right, but those 12, those are the ones specifically named. But we know for a fact that there are more than just these 12. There are the greater 70. Other gospels record that. But also, when Judas is found dead, the disciples get together and they pull two different disciples, uh, followers of Christ, to replace him. And the guy that won was Matthias. Um, and it was said of those two, they were with us from the beginning. So everything that Peter saw, these other two potential replacements saw. And, uh, and so we know there's more than the 12, but these are the top 12. Verse 5. Now the, these 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them. And he gives them instructions. I, uh, Natalie already said today, there's no talking to the Pharisees. So we're all disciples of Christ today, um, even though you're sitting on the Pharisee side. Mm -hmm. 
And he says this, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter in any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right, so um, he gives them uh, what we would call his, their rights and their lefts, right? The right ditch, left ditch. Don't go here, don't go here. So don't go to the Gentiles, that's important. And don't go to the Samaritans. Samaritans. What are the Samaritans? Yeah, they're the, they're, they're half Jew, half Gentile from the old Alexander the Great conquering days. And they had create, created their own system of worship, their own communities, um, their own culture. And Jesus says, don't go to them and don't go to them. Now, does that sound a little prejudice? It does sound a little prejudiced. It could be interpreted. Let's, let's, let's ask the question, why would Jesus do this? Why would he send them only to Jews? He wanted them to have a single focus on, on, on the one group. Just the Gentiles were going to know that the Samaritans were going to come later. And just just don't have to focus on the different aspects of their cultures and all that. Mm. Just to focus on the same mm. I like that. Uh, the first church I ever preached at was West Friendship Baptist Church in Tutwiler, Mississippi. And these are the directions to get to, you know where Tutwiler is? Uh, uh, these are the directions I got. Drive on Highway 49 North out of Jackson until you get to Indianola. Cross over Highway 82 and then drive north on 49 uh, until you see on the right a large uh, field full of old, broken-down tractor parts. Uh, turn right just past the tractor parts. Drive down the road until it turns into a gravel road. Now, those of you who are young enough, a gravel road is an unpaved, unprepared road. Okay? And, and he goes, all right. Now, when the gravel road turns back to pavement, <laughs> we're the first church on the right. <laughs> I know. All right, pull out my map quest sheets that I'd printed. It that's, said that's you're, country directions. It though. says you're on your own. All right. Uh, that's country directions. All right. So, my dad pastored that church back in the 1970s for about two or three years while he was at Mississippi College. And uh, during the days my dad pastored, they went from a church of seven to a church of about 50. My dad led a number of people to Christ, baptized a lot of folks, and the folks he baptized are still the ones that go to church there that day. One of the gentlemen he baptized is the minister there, and I'd called my dad and said, Dad, I have to preach for a class. I was at William Carey College. I have to preach for a class. Can, where can I preach? And he says, I'll call you back. And, and it was West Tutwiler Baptist Church. There's not even an East Tutwiler, right? There's not even a Tutwiler church. It's just, uh, it's just West, it's, it's, it's West Friendship Baptist Church in Tutwiler. Anyway, um, and so I preached my first sermon at that church. Why was that advantageous to me? Okay, they knew my, they knew my dad. Uh, it's a small church. Uh, less than half the people of this classroom were in that church. I mean, like the numbers, right? It's a tiny little church. And uh, I walk in about half an hour early because I always like to be a little early when I preach. I kind of uh, get, get in the space, get in my head space. I'll, I'll just sit in the, in, the, 
in the chapel space while they do Sunday school. Well, all of them were doing Sunday school together in there. And then before church, they had a they had their their monthly business meeting, and uh, they had seven hundred dollars in the bank, and they thanked the Lord for that. Uh, and they said, "All right, well, we're gonna." They turned to me and said, "We're gonna sing about three songs, and then you come preach for us, okay, uh, Brother Caleb?" It's like okay, and uh, <laughs> and so and so I preached, so I preached, um, and when I finished my sermon. Uh, probably from Genesis to Revelation, after I talked for the first five minutes on my real sermon, I was like, well, i got to fill in the gaps here, so I just started whatever. Uh, when I finished preaching, they all just hugged my neck, said, we're so proud of you. We remember when you were just this big, and we remember your dad. And All right, let's come back. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter in the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why was, what was one of the reasons that Jesus sent them first to the house of Israel? It was a friendly crowd, right? Do what? Exactly. You you don't necessarily want to throw people to the wolves right off the bat. Give them a warm room, right? Uh, it's like watching our own children sing Christmas songs. We know they're terrible, right? <laughs> but doesn't your heart swell anyway? Aren't you? You can't stop smiling. You're so proud. But they're not making it on America's Got Talent. <laughs> Right? They're not making it. They're not making it. And they may make America's Funniest Home Videos. Uh, they may embarrass you. But the, but the, you have that swelling of pride. And I, one of the reasons why Jesus set right and left boundaries was not as a prejudice, but as a focus to help his students, help his apostles. Now, they were going to preach, right? And he was going to give them traction. He was going to help them along their way. But he was helping them early on to learn how to be good teachers, now, I guarantee you they came back from this uh, at the end of this chapter when Jesus kind of pulls them aside and goes, well, how'd it go? And Peter was like, well, you know that illustration about the buried treasure? Like, I got, a, I got my wires crossed, and I started talking about Jonah in the well. And, uh, and then before you know it, uh, we were somewhere about the lion's den, and it was a hole in the ground, and I don't know if anybody heard the kingdom of God. And I was like, all right. Well, Jesus was like, okay, well, let's backtrack. Let's stay consistent. Let's get on point. Let's structure our sermons better this time. How would I structure my sermons, Jesus? Well, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. One, two, three. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. You've heard, I say. Now, go live as Christ has called you to live, right? Three-point sermon, easy. See that how that works, Baptist preachers? Um, uh, so, anyway, he says, as you go preach. Now, this is almost word for word how the Great Commission and the end of Matthew is, but we, we tend to harp on that go, right? Uh, especially as, as good Southern Baptists. I don't know if that exists anymore, but 20 years ago, there was this great Southern Baptist like, go! Like, you know, I, I had t-shirts in Christian college that just said go on it. Like, well, that's not at all what the verb, uh, the verb structure in that sentence is. It's as you are going, as you're living your life, right? Now, some of us are called to go into the outer reaches of the world. Some of us are called to be preachers and teachers of the gospel in a very specific way. But each Christian is called to, as they are going, share the gospel. You don't have to be a master teacher. You just have to be the teacher they need in that moment. I can't tell you how many questions I answer throughout the course of a month where people go, well, I have this guy or I have this girl at work and I don't know what to say. I don't know how to. Just say it, right? Just say it. Get it out there. Um, 
God uses all kinds of things. And if you make a mistake, I guarantee you people in this day and age drastically appreciate humility going, hey, I told you something the other day. I was wrong. Let me correct that and then and then come back around. People in this very social media self-projected environment that we are in and we only show our good sides, people actually really appreciate, hey, you got some, you let the rough side drag. You got some flaws. Anyway, as you go preach, and I want you to say this, right? No matter what you preach, whether it's a, a parable about the sower in the field or, or a farmer digging a hole or about a vineyard or about whatever it is, about going fishing, whatever the parable is, whatever the sermon illustration is, the point of the sermon is this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how you should call people to action, right? Whatever you preach, Jesus needs to be the conclusion, right? That's... That's pretty fair, right? Because all of us have little different skill sets. You, you sell Mary Kay, do you not? All right, a little plug for you. Uh, um, wherever you go, if you have a conversation and you have to use an illustration and you can use something you're familiar with, bam. Like here, but look, whatever I just said, just know that the kingdom of heaven, like Jesus is at hand, he's coming. In the nursing industry, in the sale industries, what, whatever it is that you do, make sure that Jesus is the point of it, right? If you hand $10 to a homeless person, make sure they understand Jesus is attached to that, not just the benevolence of your good heart. Verse 8, Jesus specifically tells the 12 disciples this, I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And Jesus gives them this huge superpower, all right, and says, as you are going, preach the kingdom of God, and to validate that what you're saying is true, change people's circumstances temporarily. Now, all these people that were healed, raised from the dead, cleansed of leprosy, and demons cast out, you don't know any of them, because they're all dead, right? We're all going to die. Father Thomas batting a thousand, okay? He, can't, he comes for us all. And Jesus says, whatever that time may be, in that moment, proclaim Jesus, and for validation purposes, do these things. And then he gives them instructions. almost said destructions. Uh, he gives them instructions on how they should, in this moment, on this particular trip, are to conduct themselves, Okay? Now, I say that because I'm going to have to correct something uh, as we go along. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals uh, or a staff. Um, some think uh, what Matthew's doing is a cumulative effect. Don't take two coats. Don't take two pairs of sandals. Don't take two staffs. Uh, for the worker is worthy of his support. The reason why I point that out, if you read the Mark account of this exact same, it says, uh, Car carry with you a staff, all right? So there's some contradiction there, it, it, it seems, unless you think, oh, well, he was telling him, don't take two of everything. I'm sending you out, take just enough to go. Now, why would Jesus instruct them to take just enough to go? What, what might be the broader purpose of this? Yes, dependence. Um, uh, years ago, uh, I've taken three trips to East Africa and Uganda. Uh, the first time, the Lord just absolutely 
just through our work and through a couple uh, small donors paid our way. The, the second trip I took, God implied to me, uh, it's time for you uh, to pony up, right? You, you got to pay for this one. So Terry and I, out of, out of our uh, income, paid for my second trip. The third time I went, I, I was impelled, impelled, compelled by, by God, uh, don't, don't put any money in and don't ask anybody for money. If people say, are you going to Uganda? You say, I am going to Uganda. Don't say anything else. Don't ask for money. Don't ask for donations. Don't ask for support. Okay. Uh, and two weeks out, I had $1,500 left to go on my trip. And I was like, Lord, I hear you. I hear you, but do you hear me? <laughs> um, I was driving uh, in Yazoo City with Howie 49. I shall not forget it. Uh, I was driving just past where the Wendy's is, and a buddy of mine named Danny Dugan, Danny and Diane Dugan, they had been very generous and loving towards us when we first got to Yazoo City, and we were so broke as a joke, you know what I mean? Um, we had no money and no money coming in. The family of, we had, Terry and I, we had three under three, and we were living off an income of about $26,000. Uh, <laughs> God help us, and uh, and uh, and Danny and Diane had blessed us. They both passed, and they're with the Lord. But I was driving down Highway 49 about Wendy's, and he says, "Hey, uh, Danny calls me and says, hey, come by the house. Um, I got something for you.' Which typically meant cucumbers or tomatoes or something. I was like, okay, I hadn't seen you in a while, so you turn me go back. And uh, and he hands me a check uh, for five hundred dollars. And he goes, "This is for your Uganda trip." I was like, "Oh, wow, this is such a blessing." Uh, thank you. And uh, I, I leave his house. I'm driving back down Highway 49, and um, I was texting and driving. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a lady named Leslie Scott, uh, Dr. Scott and Leslie, um, they own U-Bonds Barbecue there in Yazoo City. And uh, Leslie texts me. She goes, hey, aren't you going to Uganda in a couple weeks? I said, I am. She says, what do you need? I said, hey, just hey, pray for us. We're excited about the work that God's going to do. She says, stop by the restaurant. I got something for you. Give me $1,000. Okay. We're just shy. It's the Sunday before I leave. And a lady who had three times uh, been diagnosed with breast cancer, her name was Miss Kay. And, uh, and I go into church, and she, she's in Sunday school, and she says, hey, have you got everything you need for your trip? I said, hey, I just want you to pray for us because I had about $300 left to go. <laughs> and uh, she says, well, here's, I'm supposed to give this to you. It's $280, right? Let's come back here. Verse nine, do not acquire gold or silver or copy of copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or two sets of coats or two sandals or two staffs, uh, that's implied, for the worker is worthy of his support. What was he doing? He was setting them, I think, in a place of dependency. Now, this does not mean that we should not pray our, pay our pastors. <laughs> there are some people who have taken this as a position. Like, see there? Preachers ought not, ought not have gold or silver or copper or extra clothes or nothing. Keep them humble. Right? That's eh, stupid. Don't do that. Jesus said, you know, don't muzzle the ox with your coat. That's right. And, yeah, yeah that's true. So, uh, you know, especially on the money part, there were professional board 
Correct. Or specifically for money. So yeah. they wanted to make sure that everyone knew that's not what they were there for. Correct. Especially when they start healing people. Right. Right? It looks like Sideshow Bob shows up. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, no. Keep your money. Like, nope, that's not what we're here for. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at this house until you leave that city. Um, so the first person they walk into is the person they stay with. Yeah, so if it's the first young couple that is just starting out and they have just no furniture and you're going to sleep in the corner of their little one-bedroom apartment, God, could God be the glory, right? But if it's Bill Gates' cousin, right, and they live up all on the mansion on the hill and they're the first ones to get you, hey, to God be the glory, right? You get your own goose-down bed. What he did, and Mark accentuates this a little bit more, but he's, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to provide for you. The first thing you get, take. And don't go jumping from house to house. Don't give the appearance that you're looking for glory. If it's humbleness that I provide, live in humbleness. If it's opulence I provide, live in opulence, opulence for that season, right? And whatever, or verse, verse 12, as you enter the house, give it your greetings. They would say, shalom, or peace be upon this house, right? They would give it a blessing. That was a customary thing. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Pastor preached on this a couple weeks ago where Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house named Simon. And Simon did not wash his feet, did not give him oil for his head, did not offer him any cleaning, cleansing, cultural things, which was a curse. Okay, Jesus is saying, when you go into a home, if they don't give you the customary blessings and they're, it's clear that they're, they're going to insult you, take back your peace and leave. All right? Again, this goes back to the overall idea that I think that Jesus is setting them up for an easy on-ramp into the ministry. Now, not that it's not going to be without any difficulty, but Jesus is saying, look, I'm not trying to throw you to the wolves on this one. I'm trying to throw you to the cats, right? Uh, Just be real. Just go in and say your peace, preach your sermons, and then if there is no peace, leave. Uh, verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Now this is, I have seen some people do that, this very poorly. This was a sign of like condemnation, right? Again, it's not just like shaking the dust off your feet. I'm not taking your stupid town with me. It literally is the bottom of your feet and your shoes are a disgrace, right? In Middle Eastern culture. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, I condemn you, right? This is only in the event that something bad happens. This is not every time someone rejects the gospel, but it's when they're ugly to you. Say, all right, fine. Condemn, roll out. Verse 15, Jesus says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So he moves from what you're to take and how you're to act to like, hey, I'm going to give you some comfort now. I'm going to give you some direction on how you should have personal deportment in your own chest, in your own heart, is how you're to respond to the world. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Does Jesus have any delusions over who these, these 12 are? No. He's like, I know who you are. Like, I know who you are. And you're not, you're, you're not up to this task yet. I'm getting you ready for it. Uh, and he says, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We found a big king snake in the front yard this uh, two weeks ago. It was like three feet long, and uh, my dog was out in the front yard just like 
you know, the whole, you know, wallowing in the grass, you know, belly up, just loving the heat. Uh, and like six inches from her was this king snake eating a lizard. And then she saw it all at once, right? Woo! And kind of freaked out. Uh, why didn't she see it when she was there wallowing around? Because that snake knew if I lay real, real still, maybe nobody will bother me. In your Christian work, there is great virtue in knowing when to shut up. Read the room, right? You don't have to always be the contentious one. I call these people jerks for Jesus. You know them. You work with some of them, right? And uh, I, I, I work with a lady right now, and I don't say this to my glory, but there's a couple other believers in our, in our office, and uh, she's not an atheist, but she doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. She has a lot of church hurt uh, from her past, from an old Roman Catholic upbringing uh, in a Latino community. Got a lot of brokenness uh, and rightful hurt. And she says to me, where were these types of Christians when I needed you? Right? She's still got a lot hurt. But she recognizes there's something different about the Christians she works with now. Because we really work on not being jerks for Jesus. Right? Now, I will not pull my punch. I'm going to say the truth. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to give you a no, uh, a no, no barred, a no, no, nothing's off limit. I'm going to give you the truth. But do it in the right way. Be shrewd as serpents. Be wise as serpents. Know when to sit still, know when to sit back, know how to respond. A kind word turns away wrath, right? You can say hard things in a soft way, okay? And uh, he goes on to say this, uh, be innocent as doves. Don't, don't stick out like a sore thumb, right? Uh, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to the, the synagogue courts. It was customary. If you had an issue, they'd take you to the synagogue, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. This is probably a prophetic tone, like one day this is going to happen to you. But when they hand you over, don't worry about what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you were to say. Uh, so... This is not a, a, a Bible verse saying don't prepare. This is saying prepare, but when the moment comes and you feel apprehensive, God's going to put all the words together for you, right? You don't have to have all the answers now, but prepare your heart, study Scripture, uh, but God's going to figure out the outline when it, when it needs to be said. For it is not, verse 20, you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, father to his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who is endured to the end who will be saved. This idea is, is prevalent throughout uh, the writings of the apostles and of Paul. Uh, perseverance is, is an evidence of your salvation. Uh, uh, Gary talked through the three Johns uh, over the last couple, uh, several months. And one of the major themes of 1 John is true believers carry on as true believers. Jesus taught a parable about this, right? Not the ones who say they follow Jesus and they, they like, they're like seed that grew up on rocky soil. When the, when the, the circumstances of life hit, they wilted because they didn't have a good root system. Evidence of Christianity is longstanding with Christ, perseverance with Christ, right? That's the mark of a, of a true conversion. Verse 23, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. 
For I truly say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Verse 23 seems to be an indication that Jesus, like literally on this short-term mission trip he's sending his apostles, is gonna, he's going to come find them. Right? He's like, y'all just keep preaching, I'll come get you. Like, Y'all going to start on the east side and work your way north. I'm going to start on the west side, work my way south. And then some ways we're going to meet in the middle. So Jesus didn't just send them out and sit still. He sent them out and did his thing as well, uh, which might have been a brilliant stroke of, 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 of leadership there. Sometimes you've got to take a vacation from your kids, right? Jesus like, I love you guys. Go preach over there. I'm going to go preach over here without y'all. Uh, and so uh, he says, I'm going to come get you. This doesn't seem to be a prophetic, apocalyptic kind of uh, indication here in the sentence structure. He's like, I'm going to come get you. I'm, I'm the son of man. I'm going to come get you. And that's when you know to stop preaching. I'll swing through and I'll grab you on the way home from lunch. Right? Uh, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, do you notice how a lot of these have uh, quotation marks at the start of the verse? Like verse 28, and then verse 25 has another quotation mark, and then verse 30 has another quotation mark, and verse 31 has another quotation mark. I think this probably is an indication this is a walking conversation that happened over maybe several days, maybe even a week or two, where Jesus is prepping them, like, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this mission trip. And every time Jesus talks about it, old Bartholomew, you can see his hands start getting tremory. Right. Uh, uh, poor Thomas, you know, because he was a doubter. I'm just kidding. I was eye-rolled. Um, like, uh, do you kind of get the idea that every time Jesus talked about this, you could see their heart rate going? And every time Jesus was like, hey, don't be afraid. And it seems like each one of these statements may have been like, hey, look, I'm going to tell you this in the darkness, but I want you to speak it in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Like, I'm going to give you what you need when you go proclaim it. And then he says this, don't fear. All right. And the next verse is this, like, aren't two sparrows sold for a cent? Right. Jesus values them. It seems to me that Jesus is giving these, he's peppering these, these things, and Matthew was like, I needed all of those, right? And he kind of recorded this into one, one structured paragraph. I kind of get the feeling that this was an ongoing, like we had this conversation multiple times. I'm sending Benjamin off to college next year. We promise we have talked to him a lot about it, and each time there's some apprehension, so we've got to like, hey, you got this, boo. And, uh, and so I kind of get this vibe from that. Uh, verse 31, 32, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That's an encouragement. Hey, go out there and do it. If you tell others about me, I'm going to tell the Father about you. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. So the reverse is also true. If you say you follow me and you get out there and you 
decide that you don't want to follow me, just know that, that the Father is, is going to deny you as well. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is still true in Middle Eastern culture to this day. There are people, uh, if they come to Christ, their family cuts them off entirely. It's not just, hey, like, come to Thanksgiving and we'll just have a, 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 an uncomfortable meal. It's, you're dead to us. We will mourn you, and then we will think of you no more. And Jesus is saying, when you follow me, especially in a Jewish culture like this, or a Muslim culture which exists now, or even in some Orthodox Jews, Jewish communities today, uh, when you follow Christ, you're, you are leaving that family, your old family. Now, we don't really express that culture, right? When our little ones come to know Jesus, we, we put them up front. We have a baptistry that's 30 feet in the air. And when, they're, when our little ones are baptized, if you're not standing on the stairs behind the scenes taking pictures, uh, you're down at the bottom with your parents and your, your spouse's parents weeping and applauding, right? We don't necessarily experience this here. Jesus knew they would, okay? And this is a contextual statement. Um, he who loves his father or more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Again, this is a contextual statement in this day and age where Jesus knew that if you followed him, you were risking it all. That is not contextually true for us, is it? I mean, even if you work in a predominantly uh, unchristian business, like, if you get saved, people just, like, won't go to eat lunch with you anymore. I mean, it's, it, it, we don't experience that in our context. I think the day's coming. Hopefully not in our generation or our children's children's generation, but it's coming. But contextually, that's not really what's happening for us. It is for them. And verse 40, as we finish out this verse, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me that is god the father he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward hey that's a blessing that's a blessing the prophet the proclaimer of the gospel of god the the one that is is out there uh struggling and suffering and god says i'm going to provide you a blessing of a prophet uh god says if they receive a prophet they get the prophet's reward. So that should be an encouragement to us to make sure that we're caring for those who proclaim the gospel in our lives, right? We need to take care of those people who speak the truth. And sometimes that's your mother, and sometimes that's your father, and sometimes that's your neighbor, and sometimes that's the staff at the church, right? It's important that we, that we properly care for uh, those who proclaim the truth of the gospel to us. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. He receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And the last verse, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. God will bless those who bless the followers of Christ. 
And that's kind of how he wraps up this. And uh, we'll get into chapter 11 next week. Uh, but the story begins to transition, and the, the, the pace of Matthew will start picking up here pretty soon. We're going to go from the one-year mark very quickly uh, into the next several months um, uh, in Jesus' timeline.